to our podcast today on small business horsepower. This is really a simulcast. Today, I have the pleasure of being on the Tim Gosselin Show. As you know from a previous episode, I call him Timmy. It's a little bit of a revenge based on the fact that he's a Patriots diehard. But Timmy Gosselin has a beautiful program, and he does the video of the podcast. So I'm going to be on his show, and he's going to be on my show. And we're going to do a fantastic simul podcast for you. A simulcast today, Tim, on Small Business Horsepower. Now, your Small Business Horsepower podcast, you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Tumblr, or wherever you find your podcast. Tim, let's welcome each other here to the showgram, the Tim Gosselin Show and the Small Business Horsepower Show Simul Podcast. Thank you, Mayhole. Appreciate it. Um the time being on your show, and I appreciate uh, us setting this up. Uh, would like to start the show with a gift. So You have a gift for me? I do. Well, yes. you brought some cigars. By the way, just like if any of you heard the previous episode, Tim wanted to have a, a cigar on my backyard here overlooking the ocean and uh, with a little fire pit running. And you know what? This is perfect weather for it. It's it's dreary. It's got a little cold feeling. But then here comes Tim, that flame for the fire pit. And then Tim just brought me this. It says Juan Lopez Habana, so a Cuban cigar. And I've got him this Sombresa Brulee that's, oh, if you've ever had that, it's so sweet. Isn't it, Tim, on the front? This is, I am loving this. Thank you. Oh, this is an amazing, we're overlooking the ocean. All right, Tim, let's get right to it for our listeners. How do you want to start this with a gift? Yeah, with a gift. So one of the uh, shows that I like to watch is called the, uh, the Sean Ryan Show. And I just thought it was such a great way when he's having someone come to his studio or his house. He just starts it off with a gift. And I just thought, you know, what is it? Imitation is the greatest form of flattery, I think it is, Mayhol. And so I just want to start off by saying, I know you're a big cigar connoisseur. And I just wanted to say thank you for your time. And I wanted to give you this cigar lighter. No, I'm in love with that thing. I mean, that's... That thing's got everything on there. That's got like the punch, the whole shebang. Yes. <laughs> Are you Are kidding, you kidding me? I, I call this the transformer and this of lighters. And this was actually, I first saw this. I was playing golf with another buddy of mine in the commercial real estate industry. And I was blown away by it. And I'm like, oh my goodness. So I bought one myself and I have found these to be excellent gift ideas. So it's got the punch. It's a holder. As a matter of fact... Let me give you, here's a holder right here if you would like. If you need to light again, you can. So, Mayhole, enjoy. That's my gift. Oh, Tim, that is, I mean, this is, I mean, this is the time that I actually forget that you're a diehard Patriot fan as a, as the Jets diehard that I am, because this is amazing gift. Tim, thank you so much. We really appreciate that. And I just, I'm very happy with this. Uh, you didn't have to do that. It's you're very welcome. nice. Well, you're welcome. And one of the, what I'm trying to do with my show and making it unique is I'm looking to just have real, authentic 
vulnerable conversations with friends that are in the small business industry. Obviously with me being in commercial real estate, I'm working with small business asset owners or business owners, occupiers of commercial real estate. And I think there's a real craving and hunger in our society just for vulnerable, authentic conversations because anyone who's been in business, an entrepreneur, a founder knows it's really damn hard. <laughs> being in small business. Oh, you're not kidding. <laughs> it's hard. And I just feel like when you look at someone's social media, you know, you always get the perfect image of somebody, you know, at just that right time. But in reality, when you're trying to run a business, you're going 100 miles an hour with your hair on fire and you constantly have 5, 10 various tasks that you're working on all at the same time. Servicing clients, marketing for new clients, trying to close deals, accounting, you know, receivable payables like it's always a constant fire drill as a entrepreneur and so that's the show that's the angle that I'm looking to go with and like let's peel the onion back everyone thinks oh you're a business owner you got the private jet you're living the good life well that may be but what you don't see is all the things it takes to hopefully maybe one day get there that's why I Timmy I call it small business horsepower it takes a lot of horsepower to get there to climb that mountain is very very difficult now if you reach that peak it's very rewarding but you really every small business owner knows that sweat equity they call it or what you put into getting and climbing the mountain yes yeah, so what i'd like to do is just start off by asking you a couple of questions let's go timmy let's go and essentially how did we get here is ultimately the question that i'd like to you know lead up to eventually, but we got a lot of background info we need to ask before we get to that question, or at least the answer to it. Right. So have you talked, when I've listened to at least half dozen, a dozen of your shows, have you given much background to your audience with regards to your business, what you did? Do they know much about that? No, you know, Timmy, I've been on other shows, to be honest. I've been invited, uh, and it's been a great experience to other shows. And I have reciprocated by having those guests on my shows, but I've only talked about my journey on other people's shows. I have not talked about my journey on my own show because so far in the, what, 30, 33, 34, whatever episodes we've done, we've really concentrated on other people's journeys or some type of people that will help people with someone's journey. And so I think your audience would love to hear the Mayhole story. How did Mayhole get to a point where he's like, I want to do a small business horsepower show talking about business? Like, why? What, what was the genesis of that? How did we get here? So with that being said, let's start off by, before we get to VMS aircraft, let's talk about the other things you tried working on before you got to this VMS business. For example, when I was in high school and in college, I would knock on doors, pass out a slip of paper, like a flyer, so to speak, and I would cut grass in the, the neighborhood. What does some of your, before your business that popped and, and got successful, what were some of the other ventures you were doing in your youth? before you got to the VMS business? It's a great question, Timmy. I think this career that I have really started when I was 13 years old, if you want to go back that far. Please. You know, my father, who's 
passed away now about 16, 17, 17 years ago. Boy, time flies. Huh? He was a very hardworking man. He was a chemical engineer. He was a manager of chemical factory. Uh, he wasn't a man that was so giving of many compliments, if you will. He was a straightforward, okay, you know, very black and blue type of chemical engineer. He wasn't a sales guy. So anyway, to get to the story, his friend, who we called my uncle, like they were very close friends, lived in Burlington, Vermont, okay? And Burlington was very close to the Canadian border. So when I was 13, they hosted the Olympics in Montreal. And we got tickets for some event. So we drove from our house in New Jersey up to Vermont, stayed with my uncle, and then we were going to go a few days to go see the 76 Olympics. That was the one where then known as Bruce Jenner, won the decathlon. But, oh, I tell you, he was amazing. I, I saw him come in that stadium and win the decathlon live. But anyway, let's get to the story. Then what happened was my mom and sister were going to volleyball and my aunt and my uncle, my father, and I were going to see field hockey. India versus Pakistan. You know, those were two powers of field hockey. But not many people were into field hockey, okay? But so we're going to this field hockey, and my aunt decides she's not feeling well. She doesn't want to go. My uncle decides that at the last minute that he'd rather see volleyball with more action. So he goes with my mom and sister. Now we're standing at McGill University, Montreal, Canada, French speaking. I'm 13 years old. And my father says, we have a problem. I said, dad, what's the problem? He says, what are we going to do with this extra ticket? I said, dad, I'll take care of it. 13 years old, streets of Montreal, not speaking French, not two seats, only one seat. I sold that ticket to India versus Pakistan men's field hockey. And my father gave me one of the few compliments that he had given me in life. He said, you know what? He turned to me. He said, you'll never starve. And I said, what do you mean by that? He says, just what I mean. You're a sales guy and sales guys always eat and they can sell any type of product, whatever service or product that is, and you'll never starve in life. And I remember that. And I think that gave me like a background of like, hey, no matter what else I can do, I can't do, whether I become a, a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer, it doesn't matter. My father told me that you're a sales guy and you will sell. And I think that was the start of something. And then, you know, as uh, as I was going through high school, I was a little sheltered in the sense that I wasn't really getting out of the house. I didn't have too many friends. I was kind of in a different plane at that time. And my uncle, actually it was my mom's uncle, came from London to stay at her house. And my uncle very quickly looked at my mom and said, you know, you need to get this guy out. You know, he's kind of nervous about even going on the New York subway and all this. Send him to London and I'll fix him up. So they send me to London and I went back three times after that, 81, 83 and 84. My uncle owned two youth hostels. One was in, which I'm going to try to revisit, 40th anniversary of the 83 uh, visit this summer. It's another story. 
But my uncle owned two youth hostels, one in Westminster near Westminster Abbey and one in King's Cross. And one of his guys was going back to France for his vacation, the guy that took care of the hostel. So my uncle asked me if I would help run the hostel for the summer. And I met so many international students, Timmy, and everything. And I kind of went from that moment to saying I wanted to be a sportscaster because I used to write sports articles for high school and I did all the announcing for high school football games. And my mindset went from, hey, maybe I'm not going to do sports, but I'm going to be a businessman like my uncle. And I'm going to be an international businessman because I met all these students and I still have friends from Germany from that time. And so anyway, that was one of the things. Now, one summer in 1985, I did not go. My father said, paint the house, okay? No, you're not going this summer. I'm like, Dad, I want to go. You got work to you're do. You got work to do. You got to <laughs> So I took a job with Dial America Marketing. Dial America Marketing, which used to have a San Diego branch. At that time, they sold like, because magazines were popular at that time. Just took a puff of my cigar down. Enjoy. But magazines were popular, but they sold Time Magazine, Sports Illustrated, all these weak children's books, the whole thing. And they hired me for the telemarketing phone room. And I had a very, very good sales record. And I learned a lot from telemarketing. You know, I'll tell you a story about that. I ended up at one point training, actually joining that full time after I graduated from college just for a year until I found another job, you know, that was more in line with my education. And I used to train phone reps to sell this stuff. I, I give you a quiz, Timmy. There were some men and women that had beautiful phone voices and presentations. So they would start like this, Tim. There's an issue of Sports Illustrated available for $13.99 plus shipping and tax. And if you buy the issue today, if you buy the subscription, I'll not only throw in a clock, but I'll throw in the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue, Tim. And they would make this beautiful presentation, but they wouldn't get the order. Because in the presentation, there was one word, Tim, that they were supposed to say. And it was written right on the presentation, yeah. but they didn't say that one word. What would you think that word is? I don't know, Mayhole. Why don't you tell me? Would you throw me a lifeline? Tim, you didn't try too hard to think of the word, all right? What do you think that one word is? I honestly don't know. The word is okay. See, if I say, Tim, this issue's $13.99 plus handling, here's your address, you get the clock, you get the issue. But after that, I have to say, okay? And the reason I have to say, okay, is because I'm now asking for you to make a commitment on something. That you you always want a buyer to say yes or no, to something. Or no, or no. Okay. But if you say no, then I have an objection thing ready for you. But if Got you your don't script. say okay, then you leave the call the guy on their lady on the other side hanging. Right. They wait a couple seconds and says, oh, my husband's in the shower. You know, I got to go to dinner right now. Okay, call me another time. And they hang up the phone. You have to say the word okay. It sounds so simple, but do you know that 80% of all the sales reps that came in that phone room were afraid to say the word okay? I wonder why. Because if you say okay... 
then the person has to respond and you're afraid that you may be rejected. You have to be able to handle rejection. And Tim, that's getting to your point. That's when I learned, because see, I always thought anyone could do sales is very simple. That rejection, that's big. And, and if you haven't been in the sales industry, then you just can't simply relate. But try try soliciting someone for anything and do it 10 times and get rejected nine times. Are you really going to be willing to, act, whether it's a phone call in person, that 10th time? That's what well, separates. Well, that's the key you've hit is that I could take that rejection nine times and that 10th time I'm going to make the sale. It's a numbers game if your presentation is solid. And that is the genesis. So I hope that answered your question, but between my father's story and then selling for Dial America and then training people and then, you know, seeing the work ethic of hitting that phone room every day and making calls and all these things I did before I even ever got to it. And after that, I took a year off and I worked for Drexel Burnham Lambert. Drexel was one of the leaders in, um, you know, before Milken crashed it on Wall Street, but I worked for Drexel Trading. Drexel Trading traded metals, oils, foreign exchange, and I was a back office guy, but I worked with some who turned out to be some of the greatest executives. I mean, I worked with David Messer. David Messer turned out to be the president of Semper Energy, which is based in San Diego. I mean, he spoke five languages, including Russian at age 26. I was a back office guy, and he was a gold trader. Uh, these guys were really famous gold options traders, gold traders. Some of them are still in the market today. And that was an environment where you saw the work ethic. I mean, these guys would take no prisoners in what they did. So I think between my experiences in working with some real big executives as a back office employee, which I eventually made it to the trading desk for a very short period, and that's a whole other story of how I got in this business. But I hope that gets us started with giving you a little a basis, a background of what I did before I got to this thing. I absolutely loved hearing that. And I I can relate to what you just described in so many different ways. But first, just talking about your dad and slow to give encouragement or compliments. And I have a similar story where my dad was in the construction industry, was struggling with his computer. I was a freshman. I was either in the eighth grade or a freshman in high school. My dad is struggling with his PC and he's using his PC to print invoices, finished a job, can't print his invoice. So your dad right. gives you a compliment when you sold a one-off ticket, hard to do when there's only one ticket and usually people come in pairs, right. right? That gives you a compliment. That gives you motivation and inspiration, hence your journey down the sales route and sales profession. Is that was that a big catalyst for you? It sure Absolutely, sounds like it was. because everyone wants that read. You know, you want to hear your parents and father or mother say, hey, you've got talent in this. Everybody wants that, right? So I think that was it. And then, of course, over time, you kind of realize that you may have an innate ability to do this. And then over more time, you realize there's a lot of people that don't. But because you do, you think it should come simple to everybody else, but it doesn't. 
right? And I would sure that some guy who's a numbers guy or an engineer thinks that everyone could understand what he's talking about, but he, they can't, you know? People don't know what they don't know, and you either have the mindset, the tenacity, the grit to go the next prospect to the next and so on, even though you may have gotten denied how many umpteen number of times you've, you're just that much closer to the yes. Yes, I'll buy. Yes, I want this product or service. I love it. And so where I was going was... I saw my dad get help on his PC from one of his uh, employees, and I saw the look on my dad's face when I was, you know, call it 15 years old, plus or minus, when his computer was operational and he was able to print his invoices so he could get paid and pay his staff and, you know, support the family. So what did I, what was my first career out of high school and college? It was in the IT industry. I had all kinds of Microsoft certifications and I, systems admin, you know, engineer. Microsoft, this, that, and the other. And where did all that come from? I saw the look on my father's face when he got his computer up and running. And I said, if that guy can make my dad happy like that, then I want to do something like that as well. Okay, so we got some background on the work ethic, the entrepreneurial spirit, the go out and close a deal, sell a service. Now, how you're working with the securities currency trading group, and how does that turn into VMS aircraft selling paints and adhesives? Where did you go from? So, how did you get there? So I worked, I made the trading desk at AIG behind those gold traders. That was in Fort Lee, New Jersey, where, I mean, at Drexel, when Drexel collapsed, the partners negotiated a deal with AIG, the big insurance company that was run by Greenberg, very famous company. Even today, AIG is a huge company. The partners negotiated a deal with AIG, but politics kept in. They had a girl from Yale and Harvard who wasn't doing so well in another department. I had made the for, uh, the gold options trading desk as a clerk. I was supposed to learn from David Holmes, one of the great gold traders in, in history, a British guy. He's still active, I believe. And I got ousted from the desk back into the back office. I was devastated. So what did I do? I got a job at Bacata Metals, a competitor, original member of the London Bullion Fix, New York City. Five World Trade Center, okay? when they had the World Trade Center. They hired me to sit alongside the gold options trader on the desk as an apprentice and learn the business. I thought I was doing pretty well. They were gonna try me for six months. First few months went okay, and then things started, got a little rocky. Gary, the uh, gold options trader, wasn't making that much money. There was pressure on him. He was kind of looking at me saying he doesn't think I'm cut out for the job. I'm thinking I need more time. I started taking courses, Timmy, at the One World Trade Center, kind of where the planes hit, 86th floor. They had a World Trade Center training program on how to export products. Mr. Joseph Kay was the instructor. He was New Jersey Exporter of the Year. And Kay taught people how to export products as a trading company. Remember, this is before Amazon and before the web and the internet and everything else. So what Kay would do is he'd buy blue jeans or electronics or whatever, and all night he'd be sending telexes to Africa 
and stuff, trying to get people to broker a deal. So he taught us how to write letters to foreign companies and where to use the Department of Commerce to look at leads. So to make the story shorter, one day I got fired at Makata, six months into the job. And I'll never forget, my boss had a cigar outside the human resource manager's office as they're firing me. They don't do that anymore. And, well, you can't even smoke in the building anymore. So, um, you know, they're firing me. That night I went to school. I learned something from Joe Kay. I came home. I brought a desk. And the next day my dad came downstairs and he said, guess what? You have a business. I had no customers. I had no clients. I didn't know what I was going to export. I had a template for what Mr. K taught us. From that day, I was 27 years old. It was November of 1991. I started that business in my parents' basement. I had about somewhere about $20,000, $25,000 in the bank total. And I started that and... Um, never looked back. I first started with chemical engineering, like my dad. He was a chemical engineer. He tried to get me to export plastic scrap because he had some connections. That didn't work. I tried water purification equipment. That's a great story. I found a lead on a guy that wanted to buy a filter press. And what he wanted to do is squeeze the metals out of a slurry and recycle those metals. He wanted to buy the press. The guy was in Taiwan, but he was indicted for tax evasion. So he couldn't come to the U.S. So he sent his nephew to come buy the press who was a Haagen-Dazs ice cream salesman. So he didn't know anything about a filter press. Took me six months, I sold a machine. I realized I need a commodity that moves faster because a repeat sale. So I was down to my last dollar. Now we reach around 1992 or three. I've had two or three sales in like a year. I really haven't got this business going. I sold my car, I'm on my last dollar. My father says, you better go back to work. I didn't wanna do it. My mom says I'm gonna make it. So I started doing Roadrunner. Okay. delivering food on the side, picking up from restaurants, which was a new concept at that time, with a food warmer bag in the snow and delivering it to people's houses. I did that. I kept this business going, okay? I found a guy, Ron Anderson. I found him in a magazine. He worked for Felpro Products, which is now Loctite. He wanted to sell his stuff. There was a guy, Franchetti, who was an Italian guy who worked for a company that wanted to sell paints to the Italian Air Force. So what Franchetti did is he went to sell his paints to the Italian Air Force. They said, no, we don't want just paints. We want adhesives. We want tapes. We want all this other stuff. One of the products that he wanted Ron Anderson at Felpro made. So Franchetti contacted Ron Anderson in Colorado. And Ron Anderson, the only reason he called me was several months, six months before, one of my father's friends had come from India, who was a big trading guy. And I introduced Ron Anderson to my father's friend, and he was very impressed with that. Still wiping his pants to me. He was very impressed with that, and Ron, nothing worked out with the guy in India because they already had someone else and whatever, whatever. But because he was impressed with my connection making, Ron called me and said, here's a lead. It's probably not going to go anywhere. 
but if you want it, remember me. I contacted Franchetti. He gave me a list of 20 products. I didn't know where to find them. I went to the library. I looked in Thomas's register because we didn't have internet. You know, we had a 386, but we didn't have the search engine we have today, right? And so after six months, the day before I got married, I got my first order from Franchetti, $20,000. And I was calling all the wrong vendors for all the wrong supplies, but finally I got it right. I wanted to always live in California. My wife and I moved out the next year. I didn't get a second customer, Timmy, for 18 months. I came to San Diego. I went down to the San Diego World Trade Center. Thought I might get some leads. Bob Plotkin, the president of the San Diego World Trade Center, told me, you know what? There's a aircraft maintenance facility down in Mexico, in Tijuana. In fact, you can still see the building there. It's run by Valaris now. A couple hundred million dollar facility, three million dollar paint hanger uh, arm robot. And I went. And I went there four times, met different buyers. They were in and out of financial problems, never got a chance. I forward this to about 1996. I've been in San Diego now, a few months. I have one customer, Franchetti, in Italy. I went down and saw Scott Martin, an ex-Chicago policeman. He was a buyer of aircraft parts at this facility. Scotty hated to do chemicals and consumables, hazmat. He did parts. I told Scotty what I can do. I was working out of my apartment in PB. Scotty called me when I got home and said, I'll give you 24 hours to quote these 50 items or you're out. I went to the library again, used the same formula, looked everything up. Scotty gave me a $50,000 order. Now I have no idea where I'm gonna consolidate this. I didn't understand that it was hazmat, that there were regulations. So I said, what am I gonna do? How am I gonna deliver this to the Mexican border? So I came up with an idea. I called Pace Freight in Miramar. I said, look, I have material that you can take to the Mexican border. Can I consolidate the material at your warehouse? They said, okay. Now, they later threw me out because of insurance reasons, and I got too big, and I was going down there and packing the stuff in the afternoon. And But originally, they let me consolidate Scotty's stuff. But, Timmy, my career changed one night. My career changed one night. Scott Martin calls me, and he says, I like meat. I says, you like meat? What does that mean? You know, like, does someone call you, Tim, and say they like meat? Yeah, my mind's going in a lot of different directions right now. Well, he really wanted a steak. So I took him to Ruth Chris Steakhouse down near the Star of India, you know, down at the water. And two, three weeks prior to that, I had gone to the U.S. Department of Commerce in San Diego. I said, you know what? If I'm in San Diego, I'm closer to Asia. Maybe I could find some export opportunities in Hong Kong and China. So I signed up for a service where they gave me some leads in Asia through the U.S. government, and I wrote these agents or distributors letters. One of the letters I had written was to Calvin Lee, 
from Topcast Engineering. He had come from Avial, which is now owned by Boeing, a huge company in our business, and he had started Topcast. He was married to a Filipino, and he had connections to Philippine Airlines and all of Asia. And I wrote him and some other people a letter. Now listen to this. Getting Now you say, what does that have to do with anything? Am I off course? No. So I go to this dinner at Ruth Chris with Scott Martin. I'm sitting with him 10,000 miles away, and Scotty says, you know, you should meet this ex-Hong Kong policeman. His name is Calvin Lee, and he just started a business called Topcast. I worked with him a few years ago, and you should connect with him. And I said, Calvin Lee, that sounds familiar. I think I just wrote that guy a letter. It was a coincidence. But my life changed that night. 10 o'clock, I drive back from Ruth Chris to Pacific Beach, 200 square foot apartment. My wife wasn't home. I opened the door to the apartment. I had a fax machine near my bed. I look and there's a fax coming at the same time from Calvin Lee saying, good morning, we got your letter, we wanna talk to you. Later I found out that Scott and Calvin had a falling out, they hadn't talked to each other in four years. But somehow, the same guy that Scotty's telling me about at a restaurant in Little, uh, in a, a San Diego Harbor, that same night that fax came from Calvin. I knew Asian people needed a reference, so I called Calvin on the phone. I said, I just had dinner with Scotty Martin. He hung up. He called Scotty, even though they had a falling out and hadn't talked in four years. Scotty validated that he gave me the $50,000 order and that I delivered for one year. Then I got a sales office in Miramar. In fact, you know where I had that office. That was with, what's his name? The guy, uh, yeah. Goldman, the guy running that Dowdy Drive office there, Mira Este Business Park. I took a 200 square foot office there. We would quote all day. I hired hired someone, Matt Morris, and then we would go out and down to Pace Freight and pack our stuff in the afternoon. My wife would come and help with invoicing at night. And listen to this, for one year they tried me on the hardest to find materials, stuff that's been discontinued, etc. I found, if I didn't find the material, I found the replacement. And from that, a year later, Calvin called me, I'll never forget it, and said, we can't do this anymore. We can't bring this material to Hong Kong. The regulations are too tight. And then re-export it to the Philippines and Taiwan and China and Singapore. He said, we trust you. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to turn all these customers over to you. You're going to sell them, invoice them, and then give us a commission. Because they were on to bigger things. They were working with MTU for engines. They were doing lavatories, aircraft engines, selling aircraft. Chemicals was a small thing for them, but they trusted me to handle their business. And that was in 1998. And from 1998 to 2016, I never looked back. Suddenly I went from having the one facility in Mexico, which closed a while later, and the one guy in Italy, I was dealing with Singapore Airlines, Taiwan, China Airlines, Air India, three out of four of China's major maintenance facilities. 
employees. And I took that business, Timmy, from about that $25,000 that I had in the basement in New Jersey. And then when I came out to San Diego, I took that to about $8 million in sales. I became an established 3M distributor instead of a broker. I picked up other product lines. I hired more employees. Eventually, I bought a building. I started dealing with composite materials. And so you know the story because you've been a part of that working in real estate on the building that I owned. And so that all came that one night where I walked in in that apartment and that fax came in. That night changed my life forever. That's an amazing story, Mayhole. Everybody has a story. Everybody. It may not be a, a happy ending story, but everyone has a story. And I love how you took what little you had, struggled for a long time, and then turn around. Can I, can you share that lighter with me? Turned around and you made the most of your opportunity and then lightning struck. I mean, I, I mean, it was difficult. I mean, when my, we, we blew up one car when we came out here, we were down to one car and to make money on the side here, instead of delivering food, I was selling Encyclopedia Britannica. I tell you a great story. One of the 3M reps came and wanted to fire me. One of my best friends today that I go fishing with, he wanted to fire me because he had bigger players. And I invited him to my house and he went in the back and he saw a set of Encyclopedia Britannica. And he says, why do you have a set of Encyclopedia Britannica? Everyone has it on a CD now, CD-ROM. If you remember that thing. And I said, well, I got the set because I traded it for one of my commissions. He goes, what do you mean? I said, I used to go on weekends in a suit in 100 degrees in Chula Vista while I'm building this business and sell a leather set of encyclopedias for 2200 bucks, And I'd get a $400 commission that would help pay for this, this keep my dream going of having this business. And Tim, that brings us back to this small business horsepower. Because remember, you were talking early in the show about... About the idea that everyone thinks, oh, you got a, you know, you got this, you got a plane. I didn't have a plane, but you got this, you got a plane, you have this, oh, you're a big businessman, oh, it's all easy for you. No. I mean, I delivered food in the snow all the way up to selling Encyclopedia Britannica to the moment that I launched this thing and took it to the level I did before I sold it. Love the grit and the tenacity. And as as the founder of any business, they'll they'll all attest, you know, it it just takes a lot of intestinal fortitude to make a business grow and to be a founder and to launch it. It's so hard to get a business off the ground. Love it. Thank you for sharing. Transitioning slightly, moving on from from the beginning. Now let's talk about you're in the midst of running VMS aircraft. You inherit this book of business. What a great story that was. Okay. So now as you look back on your, your career with that business, what would you say was the biggest mistake you made as CEO of VMS aircraft? Looking back. Looking back. 
I was a sales guy and I'm still a sales guy, right? But when you're a CEO and now you have other people work for you and so on, you can't just look at sales. You have to understand every aspect of the operation. And I certainly did because I did it, right? I used to go down to Pace Freight. I would pack the material and ship it and I knew how to do all this. But looking back, I wish as CEO, I would have been a little bit more organized in terms of really buckling down. And we had a good infrastructure, don't get me wrong, for a small company. And the reason I was able to accomplish that is because I hired people that knew that aspect of the business, right? But I still feel that I should have put more and more time into strengthening that side of the business. For example, I'm not really good with Excel, which it hurts me today. I should have, you know, been more stronger in formulas and spreadsheets. I should have learned that stuff and, and overcome those barriers that I still have. I should have put more time into, but it was hard because at the same time, you have a limited amount of salespeople. So you're the sales guy, you're bringing the business back, and then you're also on top of the warehouse and shipping and receiving and operations. So I did okay with it, but I feel I could have been stronger in that aspect of the business so that when I sold the company and now that I work for other companies, I think I could have been even a more valuable executive if I was more well-rounded with all of the parts of the business. But what I did, which was good, was I realized that you don't have to be great at everything. You have to bring in good people around you to do that. And that was another thing that took me a while to figure out because when you are running a company, but you're doing everything, you're doing everything. Now you're hiring other people and you don't always get that performance or you can't afford a payroll of top performance, right? So it takes a while to build to where you have a staff that can execute. So I think that was one of the biggest things that I took out that I would have liked to spend a little bit more time in the office and really standardize, excuse me, standardize the operation. Systems. Systems are important. Procedures are important. We had them, but it took longer to get there than I think we should have. And I think that if we, if I would have been a little bit more on top of that, like, uh, it would have been probably... So pulling on that thread a little bit, is it safe to say, as we talk about the biggest mistake as CEO, the systems, pulling on that thread a little more, if you had better systems in place, would you have had more clients? Would you have generated more revenue? What would have been the benefit of having stronger systems in place at your company? See, see you pressions of how you operate, which we did get to a better level, is so important, right? And at the beginning, you do it on sweat equity because you do everything. Once you start hiring employees and you go out to Taiwan on a sales call, do you know your guy in your office shipped something that was supposed to go to Taiwan to China instead? You know, or something happened like that, or, you know, shipments went to the wrong place, or they weren't exactly packaged properly or whatever. And to answer your question, the 
better you do on every single shipment, the more retention, the more business you can retain of your existing clients. So you, I felt like I spent more time chasing always for new clients. And I did have a good percentage, by the way, of retaining clients. Otherwise, I wouldn't be sitting here. But I felt that I could have even done better. You know what I'm saying? Like looking back where you say, okay, like I'll give you an example. I had one big tier contractor where I did lose a significant piece of business because I probably should have paid more attention to what my staff was doing in terms of, you know, because you feel that everyone is going to read everything properly, have the right work ethic and so on. So anyway, so you learn from these things. Wow. So, I mean, we could continue to pull on that thread for another hour if we really wanted to, but I'd like to segue a little bit into post-sale of the business. You know, one of the things that I really, that I find a lot as I'm speaking with building owners that are also running their operation out of the building that they own is they really struggle in terms of identity and letting go of the baby that they've raised, that they were on doors, you know, the door's deathbed, so to speak, and they've brought it back time and time again. And and it finally got to a point where they were able to buy a building and they've got some success. And you see there's a business life cycle and they're at the end of that life cycle and they're just not willing to let go because it's their identity at that point. So my question to you is you were willing to let go. Good for you. I know so many that are not. Any regrets about selling the business? Looking back on it now a couple years later. Absolutely not because I knew it was the right time. See, business can't stand still. Business either has to grow or in some cases, and it's not always bad, you downsize again. You say, okay, I can't afford all these employees. I can't afford this, but I'd like to go back to, you know, the days where I would quote all day and go back to pace freight and ship it myself and you downsize or you grow you want to but you cannot stand still in business and i knew that with all the competition out there for example boeing remember i just mentioned something about one of the companies got bought by boeing avl Boeing bought the whole supply chain from top to bottom. They make the airplane, but now they sell all the parts and chemicals and everything else that goes with it because of acquisitions they made, right? So how you compete against those kind of deep pockets? For example, let's say I have a half a million dollars in inventory where Boeing has $300 million in inventory, but that's a cost of only one airplane for them. That's nothing, right? right? So I knew that I needed more horsepower. I knew that I needed to tie my wagon to a more powerful horse, and that timing was right. And I felt by tying to a bigger horse, but saving my employees so that they wouldn't lose their job was important to me. And I tie my wagon to a bigger, a more powerful horse, and that was the way to go. And that's why I had no regrets in selling it because I knew that that was the right time. Because you have to take the personal emotion out of it and do what's best for the business. That's what it is. 
That is so hard for so many entrepreneurs to do, just to see the big picture, to step back and say, if this business is truly going to grow, it needs more than just me. It There needs more dollars behind it. It just needs a whole lot more resources. And you did it in a way where you're able to salvage the, the relationships, the staff that helped get the business to where it was. That I love hearing that. You know, a question that I that I think I want to, you know, now just lean on for a minute, gratitude. As you look back on your company that you sold over all those years, what are you most grateful for? Tim, I'm grateful for the fact that I was able to travel the world or even all across America, and I do it today still in this business. And I'm grateful for the amount of people that I met and the human relationships that were formed. Because remember I referenced, I don't know if you remember, but earlier in the conversation, I was telling you about my struggles a little bit at school and how I was having some troubles fitting in and relating to other kids and so on. To come full circle, Timmy, from that to the point where I have met so many wonderful people, whether it's people like you that are in real estate that have helped me through my business or financial planning, all my customers, all my vendors, some of the great relationships that I formed with buyers and people. And I think when I really look back, that's the most rewarding thing, right? Money comes and goes, employees come and go, you know, the business comes and goes. But some of those relationships that I made through this business, I still have today. And I think that's really for me, the most rewarding thing that I take out of the business. So you sell the business. And what I find interesting, you talked about Excel for a minute and how you're not much of an Excel. You're not, you wouldn't call yourself a tech guy. That's not your strength. But then you turn around and you go very, very millennial and you start a podcast show. So what was the, the motivation behind founding a a small business horsepower show? Well, you want to help other people, right? You want to give back and help other people make it in small business. So my, my idea, my desire was it's not about making money on a podcast. What it's really about is can people listen to the podcast, listen to the stories of the entrepreneurs and the people that have made it, who have put that horsepower into building a business? Can they get some ideas? ideas that can help propel their business, whatever type of business that is. Because whatever type it is, whether it's manufacturing, service, whatever it is, you need to have that horsepower, right, to, to drive it. And so that's why I came up with the Small Business Horsepower Podcast. What makes for a good episode, Mayhol? Because not all interviewees are created equal. With that being said, what's a good episode? What makes good episode is can you get to the heart of the matter, which is how did that person get to where they go? Everybody has a different style. Everybody has a different sequence of how they're going to do things. But can you get it out of that person, the key to what they had in the tank that helped them get over the top? I think that that's a key component. Right. And if you can get that out of a person in an episode, you're there.
Yeah. And that, you know, and that goes back to what I was saying at the top where, you know, I'm looking to have frank, direct, vulnerable, you know, honest conversations. It's not all rainbows. You know, it's a lot of work in the small business, just running a business in general, being the founder. And you really just talked about how and why and what it takes, the grit, the tenacity. What would you say has been the biggest struggle now that you've done 33, 34 episodes plus, what's been the biggest struggle of the podcast? Well, obviously there's a, an ego component, right? That you want more listeners. And I think getting listeners is a struggle, but I don't think that struggle is because the podcast is not good or it is good. I think there has to be a component of, you know, how do you market your podcast? How do you bring it to the market? How do you get listeners? listeners and putting that time in and even trying to understand how you're going to do it. And I tell you, the biggest struggle has been, you know, a, uh, a lot of people, Tim, have a lot of listeners and you know how they get them. One of the ways is they saturate the market with their podcast because there's millions of podcasts out there. They put one out a week and they bang at it and bang at it. I didn't want to do that. I wanted an episode that delivered great content or had great guests. So I'm very picky on my guests and so on. So I don't make that many episodes. The other side of that is if you don't make that many episodes, you're not getting your name out as much. So when you're competing against other podcasts for attention, you're probably not going to get as much. And so I would say that's the biggest struggle. Where do you sh see the show in the next three to five years? As I recall, I think on your first episode, you had said the goal was to do 100. Was that right? Where do you see the show in the next three to five My years? My goal is to do 100, and I've done 34, now 35 podcasts, if we count the simulcast, Timmy, here, the simul podcast. Hey, how's your cigar, by the way, Tim? Loving it. Thank you. The the sweetness, the the flavors, it does evolve over time. And thank you for sharing this with me. Uh, it's great, Tim. And I'm telling you that my goal is to obviously get this message out to more and more people. So I'd like to have better ideas from people, and I'm open to it in place, on how to promote this podcast even more, get it out in the market. The other change I've made, if you've noticed, because you listened to a few of them, especially during COVID, everything had to be like by Zoom and not in person. I'm really enjoying these fire pit podcasts. It makes it harder to get guests because it has to be someone local who's willing to come and sit in your backyard. But I think it makes for a more exciting episode and so on because you have a back and forth that you just can't have online. I mean, you know what I'm saying? I mean, whether it's, you know, Microsoft Teams or Zoom, right. th there's no substitute for face-to-face. -face. Right. Yeah. Um, what message would you like to convey to your faithful followers who listen faithfully to your show? I'd like to convey that I, I know I haven't made that many episodes this year, but I'm thinking about you guys. I don't want to put a bunch of junk out there for the podcast. I want insightful episodes where we have great dialogue. We have great guests. I am in the market constantly looking. I get, Tim, maybe 10, 15 requests a week from various people that are looking to have their clients promoted, marketing people, finance 
audience people bring their people on the shows. And I don't take most of them because I read it and I go, you know what? I don't think that's going to do a lot for my audience. So I want my audience to know that I know I don't put out that many episodes, but I want content and quality over quantity. I think that's the biggest thing. How can people find your show, Mel? Again, you can find it on wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Tumblr, uh, Spotify, you name it. it you can all, it's called the Small Business Horsepower Podcast. I have some of the episodes online at my website at smallbusinesshorsepower.com. I'm a little behind on that. I have to put some more episodes up, but you can find a lot of episodes there. But mainly, wherever you get your podcast. Look for the Small Business Horsepower Podcast. So you're doing business development now, plus you have the podcast. Let's look ahead. You're going to be an empty nester in the near future. Isn't that amazing where our yeah. kids are getting older now? Okay, so kids are within the next 18 months, probably not going to be at home. You're going to be an empty nester. They're going to be in college. Where do you see yourself in the next five to 10 years as it, as it pertains to your career? What does that look like for you? No, I think I always want to have my hand in it, Tim, you know, because I like that networking, that social interaction. So I like being involved in the aerospace industry even today, even though I'm working for someone else now and I don't have my own business. But I want to balance that with my personal life. I want to travel. I want to play more golf and I meet people. And because it's really the same thing, Tim, if you're on the golf course, you meet great people and one idea leads leads to another idea that leads to another business idea and here you are you're up and rolling it's the same way that i started under joe k in 1991 writing these letters overseas and so on so i i, I want to continue and bring my strength in whatever capacity and that's putting x versus with Y together networking people networking myself and uh it's a lot of fun Let's talk about retirement because we talked, you talked about your dad and, you know, retirement for me was something that I was really scared of just because what was modeled to me by my family members, my grandparents was not a life that I wanted to live a sedentary life. When you envision retirement for you, say 15, 25 years from now. What's that going to look like for well, you? First of all, I'm really impressed that you gave me 25 more years. I mean, <laughs> I thought, here, I'm, I'm on the on back, back nine of life of the golf. <laughs> that I get 25 more years. Let me take another puff of this cigar right now. I feel Enjoy great. That Cuban. I feel great. Boy, you're a kind man, Timmy, uh, or Patriots fan. Yeah. <laughs> but, Tim, I, mean, I don't want to stop. Like, I think what happened to me was, you know, I was in high school. I wasn't that guy that went to the and did this and did that. And I think I missed out on things. And when I turned the corner after college and put it into high gear, I said, until the day I die, I want to go 100% full force. So that means whether it's my podcast or my aerospace work, but if it's on the golf course and it's scuba diving or whatever, I want to enjoy that to the fullest. That's what I want to do. You know, I had a, a mentor, Wayne Schuert, who said, I'm not going to rust out. I'm going to burn out. And that's exactly. That's what it is. 
Yeah. Well, Mayhol, I've come to the conclusion of my questions, and I just wanted to thank you for your time. This has been great. Thank you, Mayhol. Thank you. Thank you for coming on my show, and I enjoyed being on your show. I really enjoyed this simul podcast, or whatever you call it, and I look forward to doing it again in the future. Thank you so much. Thanks for the the friendship and, and the business. I appreciate Thanks it, Mayhol. Thanks for Mayhol. today's cigar, huh? You're welcome. Thank you.